about the, uh, this particular passage is that we don't really have any record in Scripture that Paul actually went to the city of Colossae. So he's praying for believers who has a second-hand account of their faith. And so he's praying for believers he doesn't know. And so I, I find that very encouraging for me because the prayer that Paul is praying for those believers that he didn't know, uh, you know, I don't know the Apostle Paul. I never had the opportunity to know him. And so the, the, the eternal truths, the timeless truths of God's word and this prayer shows us what an apostle is praying for for believers. So it's also what we should be looking to pray for ourselves about, to pray for other believers, and to seek um, in our own lives to live out. And so the, the first thing that we see about this prayer that we've been looking at is that this prayer is grounded in thanksgiving. And so he begins in verse 3, we, how often? Always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And we talked about the emphasis there that thanksgiving is something that's to be done always. Um, we're called to pray without thanks, ceasing, and we're called to give thanks always for everything uh, for what God is doing and working through Jesus Christ. And so that emphasis of thanksgiving, I think, is something that oftentimes we overlook uh, when we come in our prayer lives. The first thing we do is we want to ask God, or I think sometimes we come at it with the attitude, we're going to tell God what he needs to do in our situations. And the reality is we need to begin by praying with thanksgiving. And then we see particularly the things that Paul is giving thanks for the Colossian believers. He gives thanksgiving for their faith. So he's, he, uh, he's always thanking God because he's heard of their faith in Christ Jesus. And so we talked about how, why would he give thanksgiving for faith? And we discussed how faith is a gift of God. We don't come to the realization on our own that we need to trust in Christ, but rather it comes about by the grace of God. And then we talked about the thanksgiving that he gives for love. As we all have faith in Christ, we're joined together in unity so that we would love all the saints. And again, we, we see these, um, these vast, expansive um, uh, words that he's using. He's not excluding or giving us the opportunity to say, well, I'm not going to love so-and-so. I'm not going to love such-and-such. The scriptures tell us plainly, love all the saints that God has redeemed by his blood. I mean, if you, if you think about it, it would be a great, a great offense to not love that which God loves. Again, God demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That attainment to the crucifixion of Christ, the sacrifice that he's done and given for us, is a way that God shows his love for us. And so we should also show love for others. So it sort of catches us up a little bit. It's been probably about a month or, or so, maybe a little less than that than, since we started talking about this. So he gives thanksgiving for faith. He gives thanksgiving for love. And then there's finally one other thing that he gives thanksgiving for, and that is that he gives thanksgiving for the hope that the believers have. And so the final thing we're going to look at when we look at the things that he's giving thanks for is he gives thanks because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And then that is the end of the first sentence in this, uh, this section of Colossians chapter 1. So, faith, love, and hope. Now, wh where have you heard that before? Faith, hope, and love. 
Who, who writes about those things? Where have you heard that before? 1 Corinthians 13. And in fact, if you look at what Paul writes throughout his epistles, he emphasizes those three things, faith, hope, and love. And of course, in 1 Corinthians 13, he speaks about the greatest of these is love uh, because it is our love that, that determines and guides us in everything else. Um, the, the commandment, it's always interesting to me that the, the greatest commandment in the law is not believe in the Lord your God, but it is to love the Lord your God. And love is going to guide us into, once we truly know who we're loving, into trusting in him. And then finally, we find hope in that. And so that's what, or that's what Paul uh, points us to. I keep, it's, it's hard for me to keep Peter and Paul straight because I'm preaching on Peter on Sundays and I'm preaching on Paul most of the times. And, and half the time I say Paul when I mean Peter and half the time I say Peter when I mean Paul. So you know what I mean, right? This is Paul who writes this. If I say Peter again, I meant Paul, all right? So, um, but this is what Paul is pointing us to. Now, I want us to talk about the Christian's hope. I want us to talk about the Christian's hope. Now, again, uh, P- Paul is saying that he's giving thanks because of the hope laid up for these believers in heaven. First of all, we see that the hope that the Christian has is a confident hope. It is a confident hope. The term that Paul uses here is a very strong term that he uses for hope. It speaks of looking forward to something with confidence. Um, so I think sometimes, and yeah, this is nothing new, we've talked about this before, but I think sometimes we think of hope in the way that we think of pipe dreams. So like, I hope that the Pirates will win the World Series next year, all right? Now, I can't have very much confidence in that, particularly based upon what I've seen happen in the offseason and how they performed over all these years. Um, I hope that, uh, that I, will, I will only always eat ham for the rest of my life, all right? Like, that would be a great hope. Um, I would probably die quicker if that was the reality. Um, but so we talk about things like that. You know, I hope that somebody walks through the door and says, Pastor, here's a billion-dollar check for the church. I mean, that would be great, all right? Um, so we, we think of hope in sort of this nebulous sort of pipe dream type of idea. But that's not biblical hope. That's not the hope that Paul is speaking of here and, and, and giving thanks to God to, for what these Colossian believers possess. Rather, biblical hope is defined as confident expectation. Confident expectation. Now, the term originally had a, a neutral sense, just the idea of expecting something. So, you know, like you would expect, like, for instance, they're saying there's like a 100% chance of rain tomorrow. So what do you expect to happen tomorrow? It's going to rain tomorrow. All right, so from that particular sense. And it could either be good or bad. We can expect good things to happen or we could expect bad things to happen. That's the very basic idea of the term. But in the New Testament, in what Paul writes and what we find in Scripture, the term always has a positive sense. Now, if hope is the thing that Paul is giving thanks to these, for these believers for, what is the opposite of hope? And the opposite of hope is fear. The opposite of hope is fear. It's contrasted with the biblical idea of fear. Hope sees a positive or good outcome in the future. Fear sees a negative 
or bad outcome in the future. To have hope is to have a future. To have fear is to see no future. And so Christian hope, then, is the opposite of ungodly fear. Now, when we talk about fear, we're talking about expecting that which is bad. Um, It's not the same as the biblical idea of the fear of the Lord, which is a different type of idea. Um, And here's the reality. Most of the world lives in fear. Most of the world expects bad things to happen. Most of the world has a pessimistic outlook to life because what have they experienced? Terrible things. We, we, we talked about that as we gave prayer requests. We talked about how there's sinful actions that are happening out there in the world around us. We talk about how there are threats being made to high schoolers about violence that's going on. We talk about how that's actually happened in some high schools. Um, you know, we, we talked about health issues. Uh, we talked about a, a missionary uh, in the field in Peru with a son that has terrible fever and terrible issues. And so when you look at that and that becomes the experience of your life, you instead of finding hope, you begin to expect only bad things. And you fear that that's what life is going to be. But notice what Paul is saying the believers have. He's giving thanks because they have hope. Because they have hope. Hope. Christian hope, then, is hope that is directed not necessarily to the changing of our circumstances, but rather biblical hope is to have hope to God through Jesus Christ. Notice what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.21. Who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and what? Hope are in God. Now, this is why Christ-centeredness is so important in the Christian life. Why do I, as a Christian, have hope? Well, God has demonstrated tangibly that hope for me by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. That there is a reality that as we are in Him, believers in God, God demonstrated that we can have hope in him because he raised him from the dead. And so the reality is, is we have to believe the truth about Christ so that we can have hope. Which means then, if you don't have Christ, what don't you have? Hope. And if you don't have hope, what do you have? Fear. And so the world around us is scared. They're fearful because they don't have the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. They, they have seen these little sayings here, um, here and there. It used to be a big thing back in the, in the late 90s and early 2000s. There were, they were these little, little um, bumper stickers or window stickers that said, no fear. I don't know if you ever remember seeing those or whatever, but no fear. And it was all sort of grungy font and everything like that. And then I saw one that was sort of, as was the case, which I don't know whether the wisdom of this but uh, they sort of Christianized that. And it said, K-N-O Jesus, no Jesus, and then N-O, no fear. And then the, the, the consequence of that, then the, the opposite of that was, if you don't know Jesus, you will K-N-O-W, no fear. And that is the reality of those who are without Christ. They do not have hope. They only have fear. 
I think if we look at this from an opportunity for us to witness and to share Christ, I think if we, if we approach people and seek to help their fears and recognize that they're fearful and, and point them and say, look, I don't have any fear because I'm in Christ. Let me tell you how you could have that same experience of hope rather than fear. I think you can make a connection with people who are fearful, who want to find hope, but can't find it because they're looking for hope in the wrong places. Psalm 42.5 is a great example of this. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? So fear. Why am I depressed? Well, depression is an outcome of fear. I'm not finding hope. My life is bad. Why am I like this? Well, what am I not doing? How do I address or fix the turmoil or the downcastedness of my soul? And David gives us the answer. We are to what? Hope. But not just hope in anything. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, the one who is my salvation and my God. It says, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. So you see how David fixes his eyes towards hope in the goals of assuaging and helping his fear, particularly the fear of depression that he's struggling with. The downcast spirit that is brought to inner turmoil because it doesn't have any hope, um, often finds itself with effects in our outer life. So inwardly, the soul is downcast. The soul has no hope. Outwardly, how does that exhibit itself? Well, we stop eating. We lose delight in the things of our life. We become sleepless. We struggle with irritability. Our relationships are affected. Our physical health is affected. All of this is caused because we don't have hope. And so you see how connected the, the state of our soul in finding hope is with the rest of our life. If we're not finding hope in Christ, everything else is going to crumble. And so the great hope that, that, that Paul is telling the Colossian believers here is, I thank God that you have this hope. That you don't have to go through life with fear and trepidation and depression and downcastedness in your soul. Rather, when those things come about in your life, hope in God. And give thanks for that hope. The solve for our hurting and downcast spirit is to hope in God. And this is, what, this is actually the main thing that Paul is giving, giving thanks for. We always thank God, and then we have phrases, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we pray for you, when we pray for you, we've heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of the love that you have. So we always thank God because, so I think we can take all that stuff and put it in parentheses. We always thank God because you have hope. Now, if, if you really think about it, what better reason is there to give thanks to God than the fact that we don't have to live a life of fear, but we can have hope. 
Do you give thanks to God for the hope that you have in Christ, that you can rise above the misery of this world by looking to Christ and finding hope in Him? So we have a confident hope. But it's not just a a hope that is confident, that gives us this idea to help us through this life. It's also an eternal hope. Notice where this hope is. Since we, um, since we are your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and of the love you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you where? In heaven. Our hope is not a fleeting hope. It is an eternal, unchanging hope. Notice again that this hope is placed in heaven. Now this is where, again, we find ourselves, when we fall back into fear very easily, when we hope in the things of this world. That is how we lose hope and fall into fear, when we hope in the things of this world. Wouldn't it be great if, like, Jesus said something to not do that? Oh, wait, he does. In Matthew chapter 6, where are we supposed to lay up our treasures? In heaven. Notice what he says. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth. Why? Well, moths, which I hate with a passion. I don't know if I've said this recently, but when a moth flutters in my face, I will scream like a 12-year-old schoolgirl, all right? I hate moths. And the Bible seems to bear it out as well, all right? They corrupt. Moths corrupt. All right, enough of that rabbit trail. I also don't like butterflies either, even though they're pretty or whatever. I just, I, those flying insects things... Like, like to me, one of my worst my nurse night, nightmares is having to be forced to go into one of those butterfly rooms where the butterflies land on you. Like, if I went into those places, I would probably kill the butterflies, and I think they look, they look down on that when you go into those places. I can't. All right. Anyways, do not lay up for yourself treasures in heaven or on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Notice that there's no confidence in treasures on earth. They can be corrupted, they can rust, and they can be stolen. But instead, we're called to lay up for ourselves treasures where? In heaven. Which is what Paul is calling us to in Colossians. Where is our hope? In heaven. There, moth or rust cannot destroy, and thieves cannot break in and steal. And then here is the key. Where your treasure is, what else is going to be there? your heart. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The problem with hope that is laid up on earth is that it is fleeting. It can change and be corrupted. If in our lives our only hope is found in this material world, we will never have hope. What does the world without Christ place their hope in? This material world. And the reality is that they don't live in hope, they live in fear. Because they know, they know that things can be corrupted and destroyed. You know, you can be the biggest billionaire. You can be Elon Musk and buy Twitter outright. Right? You can can have that kind of of financial, quote-unquote, security 
And yet you'll find yourself still anxious about those things because you know that at any minute something can happen and all your riches can be wiped out. There's no stability when we place our hope in the things of this world. In fact, if we even just think about this from a scientific perspective, there is a law, a physical law that states that Matter can change, all right, um, but it can't be destroyed. Of course, we know that that's going to happen in the end of all things because God exists outside of these laws that he's placed. But one thing that is constant is that matter will change. So, you know, even, even to this day, even the, the, the most well-designed things, um, so I think about the Sphinx in Egypt, right? Do you realize how old the Sphinx is? It is old, thousands upon thousands of years old. Um, And it still stands, and it is a testament to the ingenuity of the Egyptian society. But when you look at the Sphinx, what's missing? The nose. The nose has, has rusted, or not rusted, but has crumbled away over time. And you see that the same thing you look at the pyramids. And the pyramids, as great as they are, They are deteriorating. Matter never stays ultimately forever in the same state. It always changes. That is is a law of physics. So why would we put our hope in something that is, by physical law, going to change? I'd rather put my hope in something that doesn't change. And there's only one thing in this universe that doesn't change, and it is God. That's what Robert was pointing us to um, last Wednesday, the immutability or the unchangeableness of God. That is why our hope is laid up in heaven. And that is why Jesus calls us to place our hope in heaven. This then, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, gives us strong encouragement. Notice what he says in Hebrews 6, 17 through 19. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, right? So we have have some very clear statements. God doesn't change. He wants to demonstrate that to us, the heirs of his promises. So what does he do? Well, he has an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have What type of encouragement? Strong encouragement to hold fast to what? The hope set before us. This is a sure and steady anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Where is the inner place behind the curtain that he's referring to? It's not on this earth. It's in heaven where Christ has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. You see how ultimately the hope for the believer is in Christ and that hope is laid up where? In heaven. That's why when Peter talks about God demonstrating that for us in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is the demonstration that our hope is in heaven. We have that great hope in our Lord. So we have a confident hope. We have an eternal hope. And the final thing we have here with this hope is it is an expectant hope. 
So again, I've been sort of breaking down um, this idea of hope, confident expectation. We have confidence. We have confidence because it is an eternal hope that is settled on the very character of God. And so that confidence leads us to then live a life of expectancy. We are expectant. Where do you see that in the passage? Notice what he says in verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for who? For you. So you, you know what you could do in your Bibles? You could, you could write above that your, your own name. If you're in Christ, these hopes are laid up for you. This is the idea of expectation. The, the verb that's given here, laid up, I think it would be better translated because it's in the present tense, because of the hope which is being laid up for you. It is a continual act. It is something that is happening even now as we speak. The term itself has the idea of something being stored up or stored away on behalf of someone. It is like an inheritance or the person's destiny. That's the way that the term is used. So we have a destiny that is currently being laid up for us in heaven. Now, how does this happen? How, how, how does the scripture provide for us a description of how this is laid up for us? And we have two things in particular. So first of all, John 14, 1 through 6. And I know there's a typo up there. John, this isn't the old English way. There's only one end. Now, again, notice how Jesus begins this passage. We know this passage well, all right? Especially John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, all right? But what is, what is in the context of that? He begins by saying, don't let your hearts be what? Troubled. Again, that contrast of fear and hope. And he had told his disciples, I'm going away. And that would cause them to have concern. He says, don't be concerned. Don't be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then this is how he assuages their concern. Look, in my father's house are many rooms. If this wasn't the case, I wouldn't have told you so. Um, I would, if this were not so, I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for who? For you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Do you see how this hope is being laid up for us through the activity of Christ right now preparing for us a place? Again, we believe that what Jesus says is true, right? Jesus says here that he is preparing a place for us. So what is Jesus doing? Preparing a place for us. He is laying up that hope for us. And so how do we attain to that hope? Again, it comes back to looking to Christ. Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father, no one comes to heaven, no one has a place prepared for them, no one has hope laid up for them in heaven unless they come through me. 
And so, again, Jesus is, or Paul is repeating what Jesus is saying here to his disciples in John 14. Look, Christ is preparing a place for us. There is a place laid up for us, and if Christ has said it, then I believe it, and that settles it. So where is my hope then? Does Jesus say he's going to prepare a place for me on this earth? No. Does Jesus say he's going to prepare a place of comfort for me on this earth? Or of riches on this earth? Or of a successful business life? Or or of a career that's fulfilling? Or of all the many things that we look to? And the answer is no. Our hope is not in this world. It is in heaven where Jesus at this very moment is preparing a place. He is laying up that hope for us today. And I mean, Paul even emphasizes this later on in chapter 1. We're not going to look at it when we go through the, um, the passage. But again, to them, Colossians 1.27, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. That hope of glory is found in looking to Christ. So, one of the activities that Christ is engaged in to this day is his preparing this hope for us. But then secondly, we also see that Paul himself points to the hope of the rewards that God will give us. 2 Timothy 4.8, henceforth, there is, notice what the term is, laid up. It's the same word. What's laid up for Paul? The crown of righteousness. The crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have what? Loved his appearing. This is the great hope that believers have. And this hope is kept for us by God's power. As Peter says, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, that is kept where? In heaven for you. You know, I think about when I have opportunity to go visit my parents, um, oftentimes I'll be talking to my mom, mainly my mom, because my dad has nothing to do with this, but I'll talk to my mom and and I'll, I'll say, boy, wouldn't it be great if there was a strawberry rhubarb pie when I got there. My mom makes the best strawberry rhubarb pie. And, uh, and see, she'll say, you know, usually all it takes is that hint. Um, sometimes uh, I, I need to get a little bit more confirmation depending on how busy she is. But, but generally, um, I have a hope that my mother, when I get there, there will be a strawberry rhubarb pie for me. And also she usually makes deviled eggs and ham. So she's very good to me. So that wonderful hope, I expect it when I come home. Now, maybe, you know, maybe I shouldn't be so selfish, I guess, when it comes to that place. Because she also has Hershey syrup and milk for me because I like a nice tall glass of chocolate milk with that strawberry rhubarb pie. Anyways, I digress. Um, You know, it's not a pipe dream. It's because I know who she is, because the relationship I have with her as her son, as her child, that I have hope, confident expectation that those things will be mine. 
we have a certain hope in Christ. Where is Christ at this moment? He's in heaven. That's where our hope is. And he's laying up that hope for us. And so we must, like Paul, give thanks. We don't have to be downcast and distraught and depressed in the world in which we live. We have hope in Christ. And we should give thanks to God for that hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us hope in Christ. May we never forget what we have and may we seek to constantly give thanks to you. Father, when we find ourselves drifting into fear and despair, may we remind ourselves of the hope that is laid up for us, that is being laid up for us by your Son in heaven that goes beyond this world. Father, thank you for the hope we have in Christ. We pray this in his name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks for joining us here online. Thanks for joining us here in person. Have a great week.